I'm Chris from Play Comics, a show where we look at video games based on comic properties and how well they stick to that source material, a part of the Gunna Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other astonishingly geeky shows at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. This is the official GunnaGeek.com show. Each week, we run down the latest news and happenings in the world of geek. These are your hosts for the show, Stephen, Chris, and SP. Welcome to an all-new episode of the official Gunna Geek Show. I am Stephen, and with me, of course, is the wonderful Chris Farrell. Are you sure that's the adjective you want to use? Uh, absolutely it is. I would also mm. use this sexy Chris Farrell. But we've also got the super Stargate Pioneer. All I get is super. That's all I get. Super. I would call you super terrific. Would that make it better? Maybe. It's not too much better, though. The amazingly attractive Stargate Pioneer? It's kind of underselling it, isn't it? <laughs> The amazing, super terrific, happy. I can't do that. That's uh, someone else's gag. Uh, hey, we're here with a new episode of the Official Gunna Geek Show. If you didn't know this, we like to talk geeky things each week. And I think, unless Chris Farrell has uh, watched it this past week, this is the first episode in in uh, three or since three ago that we have three? not. Since, three? This is three ago for the audio list. They're holding up too. Uh, <laughs> that we're not starting off talking about the Snyder Cut. So, Chris, I hope that you watched it this last week so that we can talk about the <laughs> Snyder Cut again. You're a funny guy. Steve. You're a real <laughs> funny guy. I told somebody I watched the Snyder Cut at 2.5 times speed and they said, you should never watch something at a faster speed than it's meant to be consumed. I'm like, well, then I would never watch the Snyder Cut. <laughs> What are they talking about? I consume this show at 10x every week. Yes, that's not really true. consuming. That's just like I just burn it into my brain that way. Unfortunately, by the time I edit it and preview it, it basically works out to be like 0.2 times speed. I've heard it that much. That's how, how ingrained it is in my mind. So we should all talk really slowly for Steven. This week, right? Stargate Pioneer? Like the DMV worker in <laughs> Zootopia. I love this plan for tonight. So now, now for those who are listening on two times speed, I was going to say you'd sound normal, but you were so slow, you're still going to sound drunk, which is fine. Who says I'm not? Don't judge me. Fair I'll make enough. my own life decisions. <laughs> I do have Bailey's in the house. It may or may not be in this cup. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and move on to the news. Oh, SP, I don't know if you heard about this first one that we're going to talk about, but apparently I managed to delay the thing that's on Mars that's going to fly. So don't know if you heard about this news story, uh, but I'll, I'll ask you if you have. 
What? No, I haven't. This is, is this a stereotypical Stephen Blind toss? No, it's about the Mars helicopter flight delayed to no earlier than April 14th. Have you heard about this news story that you put no, into the I news? No, I haven't. Th- great. So this is a <laughs> blind po- toss pop moment here. Great. All right. So since this has been blind toss to me, let me try to get through it. Based on data from the Ingenuity Mars helicopter that arrived late Friday night, so I'm assuming that's just a couple of days ago, NASA has chosen to reschedule the Ingenuity Mars helicopter's first experimental flight to no earlier than April 14th. If you remember last week, I did say it was scheduled to be no earlier than April 11th, which would have been yesterday. It obviously didn't happen. They're waiting for April 14th now. So during a high-speed spin test of the rotors on Friday, the command sequence controlling the test ended early due to a watchdog timer expiration. This occurred as it was trying to transition the flight computer from pre-flight to flight mode. The helicopter is safe and healthy, or so we're told, and communicated its full telemetry set to Earth. The helicopter team is currently reviewing the telemetry to diagnose and understand the issue. Following that, they will reschedule the full speed test. Now, aside from Stephen causing this, apparently, because he's the one who brought it up. And so we just have to assume that Stephen was the cause of this. Have you guys seen the selfies from Percy on this? Is this Percy from the uh, Thomas the Tank Engine? Uh now, we TV agreed show? months ago we were going to call, call Perseverance Percy, right? Right, Chris? Sure. Yeah, actually, I think we did. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Hang me out to dry, guys. Okay, so... I, I decided not to. I felt bad. <laughs> so the newest NASA rover on Mars that we'd been following for like a year and a half, Perseverance, had a helicopter on it called Ingenuity. Anyway, there's so many cameras on these things that they're taking selfies back and forth. Have you guys seen the selfies of Perseverance with Ingenuity on the ground? I, I have no idea how far away it is. It looks like, I don't know, 10, 11 feet, something like that. Yes, because I made sure to follow it on Twitter. <laughs> and I have, they put all of those photos all over the Twitter. Yeah, and I have seen that. And to that, I must say, okay, if you have a device that is there, and in the picture, you can't see a pole going towards the camera, then it's photoshopped. Oh, or someone else is, you know, they're on Mars taking a picture, thus the soundstage. It's suncast. It's clearly fake, SB. It's definitely not the photos being stitched together to make that go away. You can even see the arm that's taking the picture. No, you can't. Suncast's arm. You cannot. You can't can't see the arm. It just disappears. Almost like it's a bunch of photos stitched together. Well, it probably is a bunch of photos (laughs) stitched together, but you could clearly see the arm. They didn't stitch it out this time. Mm -hmm. You can see the, uh, probably because they got so many, oh, so aliens are taking the pictures. (laughs) Who would say that? This was cool because the mass of Percy was going back and forth. They did a little gif of three different shots where Percy was, uh, it it looked like Percy was looking at the camera, then looking at ingenuity and back and forth, back and forth. It was pretty cool. So yeah, hopefully they'll get this thing going. It did survive the cold. It did survive. That's good. But they also did take pictures of the solar array saying it's starting to get dusty. So in my opinion, they need to get this thing up in the air to clear the dust off of it so that they can heat the thing overnight so it doesn't freeze, which would be bad. And then we lose the helicopter. Now, remember, we're only supposed to get 30 days out of this. That's the plan anyway. So if they make it to 30 days, it's a success. And if they make it beyond that, 
then it is just bonus. And we've seen bonus coverage before with like spirit and opportunity and everything. It, so to date so far that has landed successfully, we've gotten extended coverage on. So we might get flights that extend at least until the next Martian winter. That would be cool. All right. So you say if we make it beyond 30 days, I'm going to go ahead and say right now, this is such a highly anticipated event. If we make it beyond 30 minutes, uh, it'll be a good thing. It just seems like inevitably such a highly touted flight will immediately go wrong and thus it will be done. Well, remember that this flight, this initial flight, it's only scheduled to be, what, 30 seconds or something like that. So if if they make it to that, this will be a success. They have tried it before in a vacuum chamber here on Earth. So they have tried it in the same similar conditions. It has flown in those similar conditions. It's just, can we get the hardware to Mars and have it fly on Mars without it breaking? And and right now, Stephen, you broke it. I did. That's gonna it. Be, it's going to be nerve wracking for them to be like, OK, start flight. Now we've got to wait for the communication lag back and forth to figure out what happened. Oh, crap. It crashed in a 30-second flight, but we didn't find out until, what, six minutes later? <laughs> so, yeah, that's an interesting point. If it flew yesterday, they would get live stream data from the Mars mission today at like 3 o'clock Eastern. I believe it was 3 or 4 or something like that. So it would take a full day for the data to get to us, and we would know for a day later. And they were going to regress. They probably still will if the flight occurs on uh, Wednesday, which would mean we would get the data on Thursday. I think they're still planning on live streaming the data coming in, which is pretty cool. It's just like, remember when I was talking about getting the data back from Voyager 1 and Voyager 2? It's just like that. It would be live streaming it. and, And it's cool and neat, but you don't get into the ones and zeros until you can actually regress the data. So we won't know a lot of the specifics for hours or maybe even a day or something like that after the first flight. But this is the first flight on another planet. It's pretty neat. Can you imagine the anxiety, though? Be like, okay, push the button. Oh, God, now I got to wait 24 hours to figure out whether the damn thing crashed or not. (laughs) (laughs) Steven, remember the first time you pressed launch on your controller? I do. You mean my last time that I pressed launch? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, your first and last time, yeah. And that's how he took a propeller to the knee. (laughs) No, when you press that launch button, Stephen, there's a certain excitement that goes Mm -hmm. with there. And it's like, oh, my gosh, is this thing going to crash? Am I going to lose a thousand dollars or fifteen hundred dollars or whatever you spent on your drone right now? And in this case, it's billions of dollars, basically. Yeah. Uh, In the chat, Kent, by the way, if you didn't know this live viewer or live listener or wherever you're checking us out after the fact, because I'm assuming you know this if you're live. But hey, we stream this live on Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern time at geeks.live. And we do have viewer Kent in our chat saying, how do you get lift in a vacuum? And I'm assuming he's not talking about this. He's talking about getting lift in a vacuum cleaner. It's very important that you get lift in a vacuum cleaner. Otherwise, the vacuum doesn't work. Right. You have to suck this stuff up and, and lift it. Well, actually, you know, funny enough, it's similar principles. So anyway, it, it, Mars, sur- the surface of Mars is not a vacuum, but it is very, very reduced pressure. So that's why you have to go into a vacuum chamber is you have to, in order to test things, is you have to evacuate a lot of the pressure to get to the point where you're at the pressure of the surface so it's not necessarily a vacuum but it's very low pressure and they have tested it and it has flown there and uh, if you want there's plenty of videos on it on the nasa website 
Well, thank you for keeping us up to date with this. This is really exciting. And hopefully by the time you listeners are listening to this, it was a successful flight because we do stream this live on Mondays. That's what I was trying to say. Uh, Let's move on to the next news point here, which I believe is moving on from current technology, which is robots on Mars, to steam train engines. Toot, toot. Choo-choo. And we're going to use them to go back to the future in our magic train that flies. Started humming the theme in my head, and I didn't say it out loud because then we would get a takedown notice. What? That's that's probably a good idea. Anyways, let's get to the news here. And as we get to this news story, here's what I need to caveat and say. We're in super big rumor territory, but this is something that was being discussed on both r slash Xbox One and r slash Xbox Series X today. So I thought, you know, maybe this is a story we should talk about on the GunnaGeek.com show. Now, again, big time rumor. We have only one person speaking to this rumor that has a track record that's eh, 70-30-ish on being right. So let's is get it into John this. Prosser? It is not. Although I did see today, random side jag, they're talking about the new, uh, uh, oh, wow, what's the Apple TV device? And it's not at all what was supposedly leaked as the specs a year ago. I'm sorry, you said 70-30, 70 being the right <laughs> scenario. I should have known it wasn't John Prosser. Continue. Uh, I'm not going to throw stones. Continue. I'm just saying that the hardware is different. But let's talk about this. This is about Xbox Game Pass. It's a service I've talked about a lot on this show because it is a service I've subscribed to, and I found a lot of value to it. I'm not the only one. There's plenty of other subscribers out there. And in fact, Microsoft has touted Game Pass as a major part of their overall business strategy now and moving forward through for the Xbox line of devices. A part of that strategy has been making the Game Pass service available to as many people as possible across many platforms. So we've talked about before how you can stream on your on your Android devices, things like that right now, your other Xbox consoles, PCs via the Xbox app, and coming soon to iOS. Evidently, it's in beta and about to be released, the ability to stream Game Pass games via iOS devices. But that's not what we're talking about here. What we are talking about is Microsoft wants Game Pass to be as many places as possible. Here's where things get interesting. There is a YouTuber by the name of Tyler McVicker who dropped an interesting news story regarding Valve's potential interest in Xbox Game Pass in a Q&A session in late March. According to McVicker, Valve is pursuing Xbox Game Pass on Steam, which may surprise some if only because they'd expect it to be Microsoft pursuing Xbox Game Pass on Steam, not the other way around. Here's where we start to get into the the iffiness of it. McVicker doesn't provide any further information about the situation, doesn't reference any sources, and there's no secondary confirmation. But it's juicy enough I want to talk about it. So let's break it down and talk about why this could actually be feasible or why it is such an interesting idea. So we've talked about it before and here. Game Pass has a lot of upsides for platforms outside of Xbox. Microsoft, in fact, has also shared in some of their press releases interesting positive stories coming out of Game Pass. Now, obviously, it's their service. They want to share these positive stories, but they're kind of interesting what comes out. We know that Microsoft has greenlit games that millions of Game Pass users might play because they know people play through Game Pass, whereas they might not have gotten a traditional release and then struggled. So you've seen a lot of new indie games coming straight to Game Pass upon release because they can get a set amount of money from Microsoft, get support from Microsoft, and it's playable to all Game Pass subscribers on day one. I'm very surprised how many new games we've seen come direct there. In fact, the most recent was uh, Square Enix, but uh, Outriders out there on day one. 
multi, it's a multi-console, multi-platform game. And day one, it was on Microsoft's Xbox Game Pass service. And the big shocking one is Microsoft had announced earlier this year they're getting MLB The Show, which is a Major League Baseball game on Xbox. Why is this significant? Because Sony's the one that makes that game. What we found out is because Major League Baseball kind of forced Sony's hand and said, we want this on multiple consoles. But what became even more shocking then in Microsoft's Game Pass plans is on day one release, it's on Xbox Game Pass for both next-gen consoles and last-gen consoles, which is a huge move and goes to show a lot of the power that Microsoft is giving this service by trying to put a bunch of games there. Where it gets more interesting to Steam, perhaps, is that Microsoft says Game Pass subscribers play more games, play more diverse games, spend more time playing games, and more importantly, spend more on these games after the fact. Because if you're not aware, not all these games necessarily stay on Game Pass, but even if they do, you don't get DLC and things like that. So there's a lot of people that find value in playing the game and going, man, I had a lot of fun with this. Since it's part of my Game Pass subscription, I'll buy the DLC and start playing all these things that come after the fact with story packs and the like. This is why Valve might see the benefit of Game Pass. And Microsoft, you know, might see it beneficial to get it out to Steam because it's more hands on the product. If this is the case, it's probably a matter of them reaching some kind of financial benefit where, excuse me, financial agreement where both platforms are going to find some kind of benefit. That's the hard part, obviously, because everyone has a different cut that they take of money, bought, money used to purchase games, DLC, things like that. It could be interesting. We know Steam has a lot of users. Microsoft would love to get Xbox Game Pass in front of those users. And I think that we're starting to hear rumors that Steam likes the diverse types of games that are there, and it also keeps people playing games on PC. It's a very interesting move. I don't know that I necessarily believe it's going to happen, especially with Xbox touting their Game Pass on PC service that they have for some games, but it would be really cool if we somehow found a way that Game Pass went to Steam and you could play your Xbox games on your gaming PC via Game Pass on Steam. I think it's, I think it's a dream. I don't think it's ever going to happen, but I think it's really cool to talk about, and I think it more importantly goes to show that Game Pass has become a differentiating factor for Microsoft in this current generation of consoles. Why? I'm excited. I, I think it's a cool idea, um, although we might be in the territory of, uh, you know, like rumor mill, like Google canceling unilaterally the 5A. Uh, we might be in that territory. However, um, it's in two countries now, Stephen. <laughs> so it's canceled in those other countries. Uh, however, comma, uh, I was... I, why would Microsoft be interested in this? Because I thought you mentioned that the Xbox app was being redone so that you could access your Game Pass stuff through xCloud or something like that. So why, why would they be ca caring about Steam? This wouldn't give them any so, extra so here's platform. Why, here's why I could see them being interested in Steam. Is there are a ton of people that play only through buying their games on Steam and occasionally through other mm. services. If Game Pass gets integrated into Steam it makes it so much easier for those folks to be like, oh, what's this? I have to be a Game Pass subscriber. If you can subscribe through Steam, everything goes through that Steam portal, then it's a lot easier for some folks that are PC gamers only to start partaking of Game Pass games through that portal. That, that's where the money sharing agreement would become problematic because if they subscribe through Steam, how much of a cut is Steam going to take? Right. Or can they subscribe outside of Steam but then link their Steam account to be able to play that way? I, I don't know that it'll necessarily happen. But 
go and look at like some of the concurrent user numbers on Steam on like a weeknight when people are playing games. There is a boatload of people that are playing. So if you're looking at that and you're Microsoft, you go, well, if we can get 4% of those people to subscribe to Game Pass, we're talking millions of people that are potentially signing up to play. 4% is probably an over-exaggeration for that millions comment, but you guys get what I mean. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, I'm not sure the financials work in the consumer's favor um, by going this route because we've seen Microsoft start to go a certain way with like all of their subscriptions and their big uh, it revenue for for the Xbox and whatnot. So I I don't know that this would pan out benefiting the customer. It depends on how prices would differ, things like that. Like I said, I don't know that this is necessarily going to happen. It's a rumor that someone said mm. on a YouTube Q&A and there's no secondary confirmation, anything like that. But it brings up an interesting conversation point of, well, if they did it, why would both companies be interested in it? And what would that mean going forward? And I think it continues to show that Microsoft's plan is to eventually get away from selling hardware, really. Yeah. It's to, you have all these devices already. We're going to actually build a cloud gaming service that arguably works better than most of the others I've, pr- I've tried right now. I, I know you would be really, really interested, though, if the rumor was that this was going to happen through EA Origin. I know that that would be your huge... You love EA Origin, don't you? Well, I don't even know if that service is still going, but they did have issues with Rootkit stuff. But it yeah. gets to an interesting <laughs> point there of if they were to partner with Steam, would then other services out there like Epic Game Store and things like that want to also partner with Microsoft to make it so the Game Pass games and the Game Pass stuff is playable through there. Now, there's already a relationship between Microsoft and Valve Steam because they do sell microsoft video games through steam right now like the halo games and stuff like that when they got ported to pc recently can all be bought that way so there is a relationship that exists that doesn't necessarily exist with like epic game store or um what's what's the game what's the service that the folks that cd project red folks put out there i can't remember the name of it it just launched like three or four months ago so there are other services similar to steam out there that don't necessarily have that relationship with microsoft so, Chris, I'm a little dense on this. Walk me through this. Is this like me getting a cable subscription, but yet I have to pay extra to go get a premium channel? Is that kind of what this is to get service upon service? So Steam's a free service. You can sign okay. up. Anyone can get it. You can purchase games through it. And it's basically a service that sells you games and then has a launcher that puts all of those games in one place. My understanding of what they were theoretically trying to do here is to integrate Game Pass into the Steam launcher so that you could search for a game. It would say, hey, this is on Microsoft's Game Pass service, or you can buy it for, say, $30. And if you're subscribed to Game Pass, you just have a button that's like literally launch because I'm subscribed to the Game Pass service that's effectively linked to my Steam account is what we'd be talking about doing. All right. Sounds like an interesting plan. I mean... Anything yeah. to get more subscribers. Right. And that, that's where Microsoft's play would be is they want more people to subscribe. And as they've shown, they don't care what platform you play on as long as you subscribe. I will be sad the day that the console makers go away because I have had consoles all, all the way back to Atari 2600. You know, I skipped a lot of them and I came back with the Xbox 360. and. 
Playing a game to me has always been, even though I have done limited computer gaming, but it's always been console gaming to me. If I'm going to do video games, it's console gaming. And when those consoles go away, that's just going to be a sad day for me if what you're saying is true. Yeah, and I don't know that they'll 100% go away. I think we'll get to a point where they're trying to push everyone most of that platform and they'll still have to make a dumb box of some kind. But how much horsepower is actually in that box will be a different story compared to what we have today, I think. And again, a lot of this depends on broadband rollout and things like that to make it more feasible. We're not there yet. I agree. And I, I think it could even be a, another level where maybe the controller is the, the device that's connecting to, to your Wi-Fi network. And then, you know, something you're going to an Apple TV channel or something like that. Right. You know, that's that's Google Stadia. Shh. <laughs> I, you know i wouldn't mind a set box a set top box becoming a gaming system if it had enough horsepower but i don't think it will i think you're gonna need some sort of gaming computer uh maybe maybe a tablet could do it i don't know in the future but the problem i have with gaming computers is there's not really a standard one out there you really have to build your own to get the better performance and it's not like out of an Xbox or a, a PS where you could get really good video gaming performance, just what what they have for years with a computer, you generally have to upgrade in, in order to get the superior performance. That's where I think. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think that when you look at this, the what's required to stream games at a decent quality, that's where I think the improvements will come once that cloud technology refines itself, because obviously you're always going to have that bandwidth limit for for people that don't have access to the latest technology. And I say always because I think we've seen this long enough, a, a big enough cycle of new Internet technologies where there's always somewhere lagging behind rural middle of country, you know, city sort of thing. So I think you'll always have that. But I, I think. You know, we've also seen that companies aren't afraid to say, sorry, not good enough quality Internet, not our problem. This is the service we're going to. So I, I do suspect Chris is right that eventually it'll all roll into the cloud. I knew you were going to side. With well, I could have sided with him and also brought up the fact that, you know, he we've talked about the fact that Chris once on this show said something about never owning a PS4 and he owned one. But I also could have brought up the fact that SP once complained about the fact that Xbox was working to remove all the disc playback and he had a big soapbox moment about that. And now he has recently confessed that he is pretty much going digitally and slowly getting rid of all of his discs as well. So I could have brought that up as well. Movies. I didn't say anything about video games. I mean, here's the kicker, though. If you don't want to try and resell your games, digital games is so much more convenient. Yeah, Yeah, because you can install the game days before it releases and it does all the updates and you just play as soon as the day, day starts. It's great. And to be clear, the soapbox moment that he had on this show was about movies and how he couldn't play his movies in his in the new Xbox console that was coming out with no driving it. So I could have brought that up to SP, but I didn't. You're just hammering <laughs> me tonight. I, I feel like I'm being bullied. I'm not hammering you tonight. I, uh, I'm just hammering. Okay, yes, I am. Uh, moving on to the next news point here. Let's go ahead and say R.I.P. Harmony. That's right. I didn't know if you know if you know this, but Fifth Harmony, the band, finally officially broke up. 
No, that's no. not. <laughs> not what the news story is I about. just found them. <laughs> uh, Logitech has officially announced that they are discontinuing the Harmony platform. On Friday, Logitech announced that it will be discontinuing Harmony Universal Remotes. This has been speculated for many years. On a blog post posted on the Logitech website, they said, quote, while Harmony remotes are and continue to be available through various retailers, moving forward, Logitech will no longer manufacture Harmony remotes, end quote. Now you're saying to yourself, Stephen, what sort of impact is this going to have on existing Logitech Harmony users? Because as you know, a lot of those move towards being centered around the hub which is cloud-based. Well, quote, we plan to support, support, we plan to support our Harmony community and new Harmony customers, which includes access to our software and apps to set up and manage your remotes. We also plan to continue to update the platform and add devices to our Harmony database. Customer and warranty support will continue to be offered, end quote. So they're saying that they're stopping production, but they plan to continue supporting the Harmony service itself, including adding new TVs and video games and all of those other things to, to it. They did post a bit of an FAQ that I just qu wanted to quickly run down a couple of highlights that I saw in there. Uh, they, there was an FAQ of, does this mean Logitech is no longer innovating on Harmony and designing new Harmony products? Yes. Remaining Harmony remote inventory will continue to be available through retailers. They also said, does this mean Logitech will no longer be maintaining the Harmony database and software? No, Logitech plans to continuing maintaining the Harmony database and software. Also on here, I use my Harmony with Alexa and Google. Sorry, I just said it. Uh, will the integrations with third parties change? The decision only impacts the manufacturing of new Harmony remotes. We plan to continue to offer service and support. And then they specifically said, will my Harmony remote be impacted? When? There should be no impact with existing Harmony customers. We plan to continue to offer uh, service and support. There's a bunch of other FAQ on there. Uh, but here's the thing that I wanted to bring up with this right here and right now. If I remember correctly, Logitech bought Harmony. Harmony was an independent company. To me, there's probably still a little bit of demand in here because, I don't know, if you go and you look at comments all over the internet, you're flooded with people saying that Logitech Harmony still continued to be cream of the crop when it came to universal remotes. While the demand has completely gone away, like, to where it used to be, because a lot of people are getting away with the universal remotes that come with, like, with fire sticks or with their cable provider there is still a demand for people who want something a little bit more advanced, coupling things like Apple TV and other devices. For me personally, I love the fact that I can control my Xbox easily through the remote when I just want to put a movie, a Blu-ray disc into there because I also like Blu-ray discs, SP. Uh, so I, I really like the Harmony and there are many people out there expressing that they are very sad this is going away. So here's my theory. They want to keep supporting it till someone else comes along and wants to buy the existing platform and maybe develop it in their own way. So that's my theory on this. Uh, let's start with USB. I thought of that too, but there, there's just no longevity in it. Why would somebody want to pick this up? For it? When have we seen this 
be a successful business model in smart home products where a company sells what's remaining of their software business, which was based on hardware, and then it gets picked up and then move forward. It's just maintained until it goes away. And I don't see any economic advantage of Logitech keeping the Harmony, the MyHarmony software available for too much longer because there's no profit in it. Uh, Before you respond to that, Chris, I I just wanted to post something in an article on The Verge. I had seen in here, because they sort of analyzed the sales aspect of it, there's a paragraph in there that said, Logitech's business has boomed during the coronavirus pandemic as people worked and schooled and home. In January, the company reported its third quarter sales were up 85%. So this is up 85% to over $1.67 billion. In the big pictures of big corporations and big things, being up 85%, if we extrapolate back to where they were pre-pandemic, which uh, they'll probably go back to at some point, that's not a huge book of business compared to where I would have expected for a big company like Logitech. So I don't know that when they go, they fall back to that level that someone couldn't make, like I I think the, the right offer to buy Logitech Harmony might not be that much money because th- obviously they don't do astronomical amount of sales with those numbers. They've been trying to sell Harmony for years and no one's wanted to buy it. Mm. It's the worst kept secret out there. It's been like three or four years where they've kind of been hemming and hawing and shutting down some SKUs because they're trying to find a buyer and nobody's wanted to buy. And, and the kicker is it's arguably the best universal remote control thing out there on the market. And there's other people that tout things like, oh, you can use your cable box remote. Yeah, you sort of can. but Or you can use HDMI CIC, which when it works, actually works all right. But everything is a little different for those that aren't aware when it comes to Logitech Harmony. They group things by what is called an activity. So you have, if you have a touchscreen one, basically a button where you can have watch TV, play Xbox, uh, watch a movie. And you hit that and then it knows what inputs to flip everything to and brings up the right devices. And then your remote works for those. Most of these other smart remotes we have, you're kind of toggling back and forth between a couple hard buttons on there to change what your remote controls or using HDMI CIC to use your TV remote to control, say, the volume on your surround sound. And then when you want to play Xbox, you turn on your Xbox via the controller and HDMI CIC flips all the inputs. So the stuff is sort of there, but none of it really works the same way Harmony does with activities. And it's kind of a bummer to see it go because for people who have more complex home theaters, This is still Mm -hmm. at the center of things because like, for instance, I've got like five or six different devices plugged into my amp, into my amplifier or to my central box rather. And the easiest way to handle it was to use my Logitech remote, have everything programmed. So you just hit a button or you tell one of the smart assistants in the house, watch the shield TV and it flips off your inputs to for you and you never have to worry about it. Now I totally get where Logitech's like, look, we're not making a bunch of money on this. We're going to shut it down. I hope someone decides to buy it, but I don't think it's going to happen. And then I also have my reservations as to what does it mean, say, five years from now when they go, hey, we're tired of supporting these services for Logitech Harmony. Are they going to put out some final update that basically makes it so that your devices can stay in their current state and don't have to phone home? Or there's some way you can download software that has the current codes and things like that or open source it so other people can maintain it? I don't know. And I've honestly looked at similar products to this 
And the closest thing that's out there, I think, is called the Cavo, C-A-A-V-O. And it, it, it's okay, but it's a subscription model. So either you subscribe per month to use their service or you buy a lifetime subscription for like 150 bucks to make this box work. Now, trade-offs are it does like search and you can say, I want to watch the Avengers and it'll know what devices you have. It'll search, bring it up on its own screen and say, you can watch the Avengers and you pick it automatically flips your inputs and starts playing on, say, your Apple TV. It's a really cool service, but it's not the same as the Harmony. And I think for most consumers, it doesn't matter. But for people who are the power users with the big home theaters, this is a problem. And we're all kind of going, oh, what do I do? Yeah. And the other thing um, that I really like about it is I do have one that has the touch display on it. And one of the things that it that allows me to do is my um, main uh, sound that I have for my TV is just a simple um, Bose uh, surround bar. And that for some reason has an automatic timeout where when audio is not coming through it, it shuts off and I can't I can't disable that. So what did I do? The first button that's on that display when you're in activity is Bose power. So that it's just right there. If it times out, you just push that. It's a, cu- a custom thing that I needed for my situation to make it work. And I don't have to worry about, okay, which one was it? Was it the red button? I don't know. Where do I go? Do I go into my device devices? Like it just makes it so simple because I have that display and a lot of them don't have that flexibility. Not to mention the hub use, which we we glossed over. The hub use, which is the part that everybody is really worried about because the regular non-hub remotes, those will will continue to work until you can't add new devices or anything like that if, if they kill the service. But the hubs are connected to the internet, so eventually those will stop working if they do back out of the service. I agree with SP. I don't know that I take this at face value. And I think that at some point they probably will pull the service because why would they keep supporting something that they're not making money off of? So I I think there's a whole bunch of questions here. I'm very annoyed by it. And to that, I have to say, you Logitech. Now, let me ask you guys this. Would you be willing to pay $1.99 a month to keep your harmony sir on limited so like i have six or seven of them in the house would you want to pay that 199 subscription to have the same free service with harmony that you have today a buck 99 a month um i would if i could still get products now that's the thing is i can't get products but hypothetically let's say i could get a replacement remote because right now my remote is on its last legs but right same here let's say the replacement is like 350 bucks yes i've I've looked yeah i I know And, and let's say that that inventory was still available in some degree yes i would pay a buck 99 a month now. Yeah, I would do the same on the caveat that they are still continues to be hardware mm-hmm. so that when something fails, I can replace it. But with end of life hardware and just to keep this service running, it would be a harder sell for me because I don't know when my hardware is going to give up the ghost. Yes. Yeah, I was thinking in lo- longer terms, like if somebody did buy it or if Logitech did reverse their decision and say, OK, we've surveyed our customers and they say they think this is something that they'd be worth paying a little bit for. I'm not going to pay five bucks a month for this. I'm not going to pay 150 lifetime. Although I probably would if I paid 199 for long enough, 
But I will pay $1.99, maybe even $2.99 if they threw some extras in there, like you were talking about, Chris, with like searching specific things. Because when I integrate my stuff with my Amazon home devices, it's telling me I can start doing that sort of stuff, but I haven't really trusted it. So I haven't gone through with it. But I like the integration with the home services. I like being able to control my entire home theater. I like when I'm on the treadmill or I'm on the elliptical, I can use those activity buttons on my remote to just press one activity and boom, whatever I want comes up and I don't have to worry about turning on and off 10 different things in order to make sure it happens. So I do enjoy my Harmony experience. I've enjoyed it for a long time. Same here. I, 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 I would pay for it. I honestly would if it was available, but like you, I do have concerns about end of life hardware because yep. if, if my stuff breaks and I'm still paying one ninety nine, it's like, Oh, whatever. I'll just go over to Cavo if it's still available. And I have no idea what the Cavo rates are. Yeah. I don't remember what they are, but if you're interested, it's caavo.com. It's the Cavo control center. And this most recent update also supports 4k HDR and stuff like that too. I thought about getting one to play with at one point. I just didn't want to have to rewire my entire setup which is what that would require. And the laziness factor comes into play. I'm just going, I, I don't know that I want to do that. Yeah. I can make things work as it is. It's just inconvenient if the harmony goes out of the loop. Yeah, I'm going to have to use multiple remotes again. I've kept them all. Uh, they're yep. all without batteries because I didn't want batteries to go bad in them. Mm-hmm. You know, how they'll leak out crap. Yeah. So I am just reliant on the harmony remotes right now on all the different things. And I have one in my workout room. It's not a big workout room, but it's a workout room with a 5.1 surround sound in it. I've got one in my downstairs living room. I've got one in my great room with my big TV on it. I've got one in the bedroom and one in another bedroom. So I guess that's five. I thought I had six, but I I at least have five and I would like to continue using them. Well, I guess we'll see what happens in the future. And hopefully someone at some point saves us, even if it's end of life begging Logitech to make it open source. Yeah, I just don't see who's going to make money coming in to save it. No. And who's going to integrate it with the Amazon and the Google devices. Yeah. Well, time will tell. Let's go ahead and move on to SP Space Symposium. Now, we've teased this one for a couple times now, but we're finally going to get to talk about it. What we're talking about is the spacecraft Galileo, which was launched from a space shuttle, Atlantis, in 1989. It is the next major space probe, and it is a doozy. And we've had some fun space symposiums over the past five and a half years. Yes, I've been doing this for five and a half years. Over that time, uh, we've had... 37 space symposiums going into depth for each early satellite, space telescope, and solar system probe. Three of those times, we've covered missions to Jupiter. And last time, we discussed Magellan, which was a mission launched from the bay of the space shuttle Atlantis. This time, we get both. Galileo was a mission launched to Jupiter in 1989 from a space shuttle bay, specifically Atlantis. Now, guys, this got me thinking, especially with today, being the 40th anniversary of the space shuttle launch, the first launch, which was your first, which was your favorite space shuttle and why? Chris, I'm going to start with you because I think you put some thought into this already. 
But I mean, technically it's the Enterprise, but I don't think it ever went to space just because of Trek. I like yeah. the Enterprise. OV-101 Enterprise was just an air demonstrator. They launched it from the 747, so it never actually launched in the air on a rocket. And it did glide tests to prove that it could fly in the atmosphere. So it did fly or glide, right. but it, it was never launched. And okay, I, I and have it, seen the Enterprise at one point in time, too. And I kind of remember being a kid and geeking. I'm like, it's the Enterprise. Yeah. Because, hey, I've been a Trekkie fan. I've been a Trek fan for years, decades. Uh, Steven, do you have a favorite one? Uh, I don't have a favorite one. I, uh, I'll go with enterprise as well because everybody, okay. everybody can, everybody can picture the, uh, the promo shot of the crew of Star Trek sitting in front of it or standing in front of it. You know, which one I'm talking about. Yeah. So you could still see the enterprise today. It's underneath, uh, renovations right now in the intrepid sea air and space museum in New York city. And of course there was the Columbian challenger. Uh, there was also the discovery the Atlantis, and the Endeavor. I saw both Discovery and Endeavor launch, and I believe both those launches were the launches right after each of the Columbia and Challenger disasters. So those launches were pretty special to me to go and see. Now, there is more that are available to see. You can see the Discovery at the Dulles Airport, which is the annex to the Smithsonian Museum that's out there. Uh, Space Shuttle Atlantis can be seen at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex, and Space Shuttle Endeavor can be seen in the California Science Center, which, Stephen, you're probably the closest out of the three of us to there. I don't know if you'd ever plan to get there or not, but that'd be pretty neat to see that. There were three trainer mock-ups out there. There was the CCT-1, which was the Crew Compartment Trainer 1, CCC-2, CCT2 and the FFT. Now, CCT1 is at the National Museum of the United States Air Force in Dayton, Ohio. CCT2 is at the Tulsa Air and Space Museum. And FFT, or the Full Fuselage Trainer, is at the Museum of Light of Flight in Seattle. Now, these three trainers were in the Space Vehicle Mock-Up Facility, which was a large open space area located inside of Building 9 of Johnson Space Center in Houston when they were training astronauts. So they were all together, but they are all in separate locations right now. Now, this was interesting because I went down a rabbit hole here. There's miscellaneous displays and mock-ups, the first of which was Pathfinder, which was just a steel and wood test simulator which you can find right now in Huntsville, Alabama. There was the Space Shuttle America. Did either of you two ever hear of the Space Shuttle America? I can't say that I did. Okay. I I thought that it was officially pronounced the Space Shuttle America. (laughs) America. You could call it whatever you want. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was a motion simulator ride at the Six Flags Great America (laughs) theme park. In Illinois, it was dismantled in 2009. There was the Space Shuttle Independence. It started out as the Space Shuttle Explorer. Now, this was a full-scale, high-fidelity replica of the Space Shuttle, and it's currently on display at the Space Center Houston as Space Shuttle Independence. However, and I wish I could have found this picture... There's a picture of little SP outside of Space Shuttle Explorer at Kennedy Space Center when I went to go see both of those launches of Discovery and Endeavor. That's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) That is neat. And then there is also Space Shuttle Inspiration, which is 
currently dismantled. Which this is a kind of a sad story. It's just in this city maintenance yard in Downey, I believe, <laughs> California. And it is a full-scale space shuttle mock-up built in 1972 by North American Rockwell as they were winning the competition to build the space shuttle. And they tried to save it for a while. It was on display in the city of Downey for a while. But it is literally, and I tried to look up if it was still there. There is no article that says it's been dismantled or whatever. So it is still in the city maintenance yard. And I wonder it what kind of condition it is. I took it. It's in my backyard. I don't, I'm not surprised. That's how Steven <laughs> visits Suncast. He made that'd it space worthy. That'd be a great flight simulator, actually. All right, now get back to Galileo here. The previous missions to Jupiter before the Galileo's launch, there were four missions to Jupiter. So we haven't been to Jupiter all that much as of 1989. So there was the Pioneer 10, which was launched in 1972. We covered it in Gonna Geek episode 372. 327. It was the first probe to go beyond the asteroid belt. It was the first probe that we sent to Jupiter, mankind sent to Jupiter, and it was the first probe to have velocity to escape the solar system. It wasn't the first to escape the solar system, but it was the first to have that potential. And yes, it has now escaped the solar system. In 1973, there was Pioneer 11, which we covered in Gonna Geek episode 349. Now, this was the first to fly by Saturn after Jupiter. So it went by Jupiter and then Saturn, kind of in a pre-Voyager sort of mission. And it was the second human-made object to have velocity to leave the solar system. Now, the next two we covered in the same Gonna Geek episode of 357. That was Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, which were technically just the next generation of Pioneer. So that was Pioneer... 12 and 13, but they renamed them to Voyager 1 and 2. They were both launched in 1977, about a month apart. Uh, Voyager 1 was the first to have a close flyby of Titan, which was a moon of Saturn, and it was the first to leave the solar system. Voyager 2 was the first to fly by all four gas giants. So what happened with Voyager 1, if you remember, is it went by Saturn, but it had an angle to take it by Titan, and then it was angled out of the solar system plane, so it couldn't go by the other gas giants. That encounter was successful, so with Voyager 2, they decided to go and see the other two gas giants. So it was the first to fly by Saturn, Jupiter, Neptune, and Uranus, and it was the second human-made object to leave the solar system. Now, guys, out of those four, which mission to Jupiter has been your favorite so far and why? Um, I would probably say it was uh, Figaro. Oh, wait, that came after Galileo. Chris. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. One of the Voyagers, because he gave us a Star Trek movie. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering which one of you were going to say that. Viger is your it's favorite. It's a terrible yeah. Star Trek movie, but it's a Star Trek movie nonetheless. Okay, can we take a quick sidebar on that really quick, really quick? I opened up my box set for Star Trek, uh, all of the movies this past week. I've had it since Christmas. And even the box set knows where the motion picture belongs because it literally it's behind the redemption codes for the digital downloads. Like you open to Wrath of Khan because that one's behind the digital codes. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I like Voyager 2 best because it had all four of the gas giants behind it. And I 
that was the last one that I saw real-time data come in from. So that was my favorite. So Galileo did not take a direct trip to Jupiter. It had a roundabout way to get there. But before we get there, let's get into some of the specifics on it. It had a mass of 5,640 pounds, or if you're Stephen, 2,560 kilograms, which is roughly two Cybertrucks. So this was a big boy going out there. It's the biggest probe that we've talked about so far. So Galileo not only had an orbiter, but it had a probe. Now we're going to wait and talk about the probes when we talk about the probes in a series. So I'm not going to cover the probe today. The Galileo spacecraft was designed by Jet Propulsion Laboratory. It was operated by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory or JPL as well. There were subcontractors, but JPL was firmly in charge of this one. It was launched on October 18th, 1989. It was launched from the Kennedy Space Center, which was pad LC-39B, currently operated by SpaceX, sending humans to the International Space Station. The next launch is coming up pretty soon. You guys excited about that launch? Always. Yes. Yeah, me too. It won't be Launch America. I don't know what they're going to call it. It was Launch America the first time around. I don't know what they're going to call this. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about the scientific instruments. They were the solid state imaging camera, the near infrared mapping spectrometer, an ultraviolet spectrometer, a photopolar meter radiometer, a magnetometer, an energetic particles detector, a plasma investigation instrument a plasma wave subsystem, a dust detector, and a heavy ion counter. Not a heavy ion cannon, guys. Get that out of your minds. Heavy Damn. ion counter. No, Stephen, it wasn't a phaser. So just to skip ahead, the end of mission or the last date of content contact, the spacecraft entered Jupiter's atmosphere on September 21st, 2003, and that was to prevent contamination of a newly discovered saltwater ocean beneath the ice of Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter. They didn't want to contaminate Jupiter, so they flew the spacecraft into Jupiter. Now, my question is that is, what if you contaminated Jupiter? Okay, fair point. Okay. <laughs> now, the trip to Jupiter did take six years. This is a long road trip. It went from, from Earth to Venus to get a gravity assist. It then went by Earth to get another gravity assist. Not once, but twice. It did an asteroid encounter, which was the first encounter of an asteroid with a spacecraft. It, the uh, asteroid was called Ida. And then it finally got to Jupiter. And you would think in terms of a satellite for Earth, where it just goes round and round and round the Earth. Not so with Jupiter. Because of so many rings and moons, the orbit was huge. And the orbit took so long that the spacecraft, while it was on station there for eight years, only made 35 orbits. So it was going in and out. It went close and then far away, close and then far away. But the close was not exactly close to Jupiter. Now, remember, Jupiter's got a big gravity pull, so you don't want to get too close. Otherwise, you're going to get sucked in. Plus, you have all of the debris that is in orbit there with the rings, as well as the multiple, the dozens of moons. We're not going to talk about the dozens of moons, but the dozens of moons in Jupiter. So that was a six-year road trip. 
you guys remember your longest road trip that you've ever been on? Uh, I, I probably, hmm, I once went from interior BC down through Idaho, went for a long drive and then back up to Bellingham. So that was a long road getting from there to here. It's been a long time. Yeah. Oh, no. We're glad we're finally here. Yeah. Okay. Chris, what was your longest road trip? Longest road trip is probably when we lived in Colorado Springs, then driving back to uh, Wheeling, West Virginia. Do you remember how many hours that took you? Just out of curiosity. Not off the top of my head. It was was a long, longer trip. But the way my dad always handled it was we'd get up at 3 a.m., and mom and I would sleep in the car and he would just power mainline coffee and power through. This might not be the longest road trip we took as kids, but it's got to be close. Friday afternoon, dad comes home from work and he says, hey, the guy that was going to go to this conference in Portland, Oregon, just backed out and I get to go instead. When When is this? I have to be there Monday. <laughs> so we... We decided when the span of like 12 hours, we went out and got the camper service. We got one of those Starcraft pop-up campers, you know, the same type that you see in the Brady Bunch, right? So we had one of those. We had a 1977 Caprice Classic, I think, back then. And we, we just, I remember my mom packing in not suitcases, but laundry baskets (laughs) and put the laundry baskets into the seats in the camper to store them in the camper. I mean, we got the camper service, we got the propane, whatever, and we were out the next morning. It took us from Minneapolis-St. Paul to Portland, Oregon, 36 hours Wow! to go wow. all the way across with a six-hour layover in Billings, Montana. And I got a whole separate story from that because not all of us got six hours of sleep. I was too young. I, I, I wasn't driving really that much. That Yeah, I did drive actually on the way home. Anyway, uh, it, it was... A, a long trip. That was the longest singular road trip I have taken. Wow. But I can't imagine a six-year road trip. That would be just outrageous. That's crazy. And I'll bet though, when you know your dad was talking to friends about doing that long trip, people were probably saying, you can't do that. That is way too long in a short time. And he probably said, no, no, they're not going to hold me down no more. No, I got faith of the heart. I'll bet he said that. So for those that don't know, Stephen has been constantly (laughs) quoting the Enterprise theme song from the TV show Enterprise, Star Trek Enterprise. Okay. We're going to move on from the road trips right now. We're going to talk about the orbital mission of Galileo. And it started on December 5th, 1995. It gathered a tremendous amount of information from Jupiter and the entire system. It's called the Jovian system. And unfortunately, not All of the information was sent back because the deployment of the high gain radio antenna on board Galileo, it went awry. So it was transmitting on secondary antennas, not the main antenna. So we did lose a lot of data that was going to be taken, but because it operated so long, we were able to get a lot of data. So these are some of the scientific discoveries that Galileo had. It became the first spacecraft to orbit an outer planet. Now, we had spacecraft that went to Mars and Venus before, but this was the first one that had one of the gas giants that it was orbiting around. 
It completed the first flyby of an asteroid, which was originally named Gaspra. Later, it was renamed as Ida. It made the first and so far only direct observation of a comet colliding with a planet's atmosphere. I don't know if you guys remember this, but Shoemaker-Levy in the 90s, in the late 90s, was a huge deal because we actually saw that impact Jupiter. Do you guys remember that at all? Not really, no. It was a really huge deal because they wanted to see uh, how what the impact of a major asteroid was to hit any planet, including a gas giant, and see what the effects were on the Jovian or the Jupiter atmosphere, those big clouds that circle and everything. It's, that's a whole thing of itself. We'll get into that later. Not this time, but some other space symposium. So Galileo also discovered evidence of saltwater below three moons, one of which was Europa, but also Ganymede and Callisto were also noted as having oceans. Now, Galileo got close enough to the infamous pizza moon, as it's called Io, as its volcanoes belched into the atmosphere. So we saw volcanic activity on Io for the very first time. And to skip ahead to some of the stuff that I know about Io, the speculation is the gravitational forces on Io from Jupiter itself is just pulling that whole moon apart and compressing it together. And that's what's causing the volcanic activity. Galileo also discovered evidence for a thin atmosphere layer on Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto, which is known as a surface-bound exosphere, which is just a limited atmosphere. And it's basically because you had that water that's there and it's slowly boiling off into the atmosphere, even though it's frozen. And that has the limited atmosphere that's there. And Galileo also had the first detection of a substantial magnetic field around Ganymede. So if we are going to go to the Jovian system and start to live there, Ganymede sounds like it could be a good place. Europa would be a great place to go study early life. So there's a lot you can do. Jupiter now has 79 known moons at the time that I was doing this research. Who knows? Somebody could have discovered number 80 by now. I, I don't know. Not to mention the rings around the planet, which were formerly moons, as we are speculating scientifically. So based on the discoveries of the Jovian moons, which one of the four big moons, which is Io, Europa, Ganymede, or Callisto, would you guys want to live on? This one's easy. You equated pizza to Io. I'm going with pizza. And it's got the uh, volcanic ovens that you can make pizza. There you there go. Too. Yeah, you can okay. make a volcanic ash pizza. Versus like a coal-fired pizza I could get here. Okay, so Stephen, what kind of enterprise uh, analogy are you going to make? Here? I, 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 no enterprise analogy on this one here, um, but I will say Io as well because it's the shortest to spell. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> it make those early classes uh, really easy for your kids. I'm going to go with Ganymede because I like radiation belts to protect me from space radiation. So I'm going to go with Ganymede. I'm hoping to mutate. That is my second favorite for all the reasons that it's your favorite. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, that's a lot with Jupiter. We'll get into more Jupiter later, uh, but next time I'm planning on discussing Ulysses, which, again, went by Jupiter and several comets. So that's going to be a fun discussion to have whenever we have that next time. But you guys have any questions about Galileo, Stephen? 
Uh, I, I don't have really any questions about Galileo, but I will say, you know, I know sometimes you talk about successes and sometimes you talk about failures. This sounds like it was quite the success. And I, I gotta say, I, I'm a big fan of the success because I like to think about the people who helped develop it and them finally seeing the success and just thinking, man, my dream has come alive at last. I just can't, I can't imagine that feeling. Chris, do you have any questions? Does it also, when you hear the word Galileo, does it always make you think of Bohemian Rhapsody like it me? It does. It okay. does every I'm single time. I'm glad it's not just me. <laughs> no, that, that was my joke earlier about Figaro. Okay, come on. That was the joke. The Figaro joke. Hmm. Anyways. But uh, I don't know when you're joking or not anymore. Steven's been making all, jokes. It's yeah. all about music song, music <laughs> and things like that. And bad music at times. I have to say, I, I almost considered, you know, running the line of getting in trouble and takedown notices and, and just you know, extracting that little section. And every time he said Galileo playing it, but I thought, no, we'll get the takedown. Just, you know, the one line. Gala beep. That's what it should have been. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for uh, sharing this with us uh, again. And also, I got to say, SP, on a serious note, I know I made Enterprise-themed jokes the whole way through, but uh, I really like the little uh, tie-ins that were in here and the little side quests we took. It's, it's like playing a good video game where you get the main story, but you get a little, little side quest action. So that was awesome. Thank you very much for that. That was, that was exciting. Yeah, we'll see if we can continue in the future. I'll practice my DMing as far as I can go or GMing or whatever you want to call it. Uh, well, it's good because, you know, there is so much that's tied in. You know, you've enlightened me over the years of how much has really tied into each other. Like, I, I, I have to say, I, I legitimately did not know the tie-in between Pioneer and Voyager. I, I didn't know that until you told me about that. And so seeing how much of these things kind of tie in and these different space endeavors, it's cool. So thank you very much, Espy. Yeah, we're going to get into some really cool stuff, too, because over the last 30 years since this happened, there's just been a lot that's happened. There's stuff happening right now, including your vaunted prediction of James Webb telescope being launched later this year. Not going to happen. Uh, is there anything that you guys would like to plug or promote before we go today? Let's start off with Chris Farrell. Just a friendly reminder, there's a lot of live content that streams on Geeks.Live. So if you're watching us there right now, scroll down to the bottom of the page. You'll see a calendar of all of the upcoming live shows. Feel free to drop in and tell them that we sent you. SP? I've been having a blast over on Legends of S.H.I.E.L.D. talking about the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Chris has been a guest the last two weeks. Sorry, Chris, we couldn't have you on this time around because we had a special guest of a speculative fiction author, Charles, who had some interesting things to say about uh, the characters on board. So I can't wait to get that episode out. That will be Legends of S.H.I.E.L.D. episode 372. Awesome. And I just want to go and give a special shout out to the Gunna Geek Network. Lots of amazing people over there. Uh, lots of awesome content. But I want to specifically right now highlight all things good nerdy. Because it happens on Sundays. It happens on Sundays. It's Chris's wacky Sunday morning show that we always talks about. But uh I want to bring it up just because I have noticed a trend. I don't always get a chance to pop in to ATGN on Sundays, but I, I have noticed that whenever I happen to pop in, and I meant to plug this a few weeks ago, but I forgot, Chris 
and Willie and Bachman, they all mention what I put in the chat. And often I find myself in the pre-roll that he picks for that day. So I wanted to give a special shout out because they have uh, brought up my stupid comments that I throw in the chat over there every time I show up. And uh, I wanted to just give a shout out because I, I kept meaning to do that because a few weeks ago I had a chance to pop in. And so I wanted to say uh, hello to all of your call, your co-hosts over on ATGN as well. I'll share the word. No, they're listening right now. They listen to every word you do, Chris. Every podcast that you do. They do. They're, they're stalkers. Boy, they have bad taste, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> so, for episode number 372 of the Official Gunna Geek Show, I'm Steven saying, hey, Chris is wearing an Eero shirt. I want an Iro shirt. I'm SP saying, I hope you guys are having a great week. We'll see you next time. I'm Chris, and I'm tired of people singing the Enterprise theme. I don't know why it gets so much shade. I really don't. Bye. I'm going to play it right now. Thanks for checking out another episode of the official GunnaGeek.com show. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or a thumbs up on YouTube. You can always join us for our live recording sessions, which stream Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern at www.geeks.live. And remember, you can find our full back catalog at gunnageek.com forward slash show. If you're itching for more geeky content, check out other shows on gunnageeknetwork.com. Voice work was by Emily Prokop of the Story Behind podcast. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you back again next week.